0: This is Mental, the podcast to destigmatize mental health. I'm Bobby Temps. I'm Danny Hogan. Each Thursday we delve into a factor or condition that influences the mind and how to better manage it. With special guests and stats you can trust, here we go. This week we're revisiting the theme of change as a factor in mental health. Something we, of course, talked about over the summer, just us hosts, as a lot of things were happening in our lives that we sort of wanted to reflect on and share some insights relating to our mental health. However, this episode, we have a wonderful repeat guest who's going to be offering another perspective, definitely distinctly different to ours, but that I found very relatable as well. So I'll share a little bit more about that in a moment. But first, we have some general background on this theme. In particular, an article from the Kim Foundation, written by Katie Zimmerman, we're going to read some extracts from. I think it's safe to say we have all seen a large amount of change throughout this year. On a global, national, local and even individual level, 2020 brought about a lot of change. Even though change is something that is inevitable, the uncertainty of it can cause many people to do their best to avoid it.
1: It makes sense why people try and stay away from change but if I've learned anything over the course of this year it is that sometimes change is going to happen whether or not we want it to. Because of this it is crucial we learn to adapt to change in order to improve our mental health and make us become more resilient.
0: And then she goes on to list a few different things we can all do in order to help us cope with change and we've picked our favourite two of those. So first off Realise what you can and can't control. This is much easier said than done, but if you can practice this during times of change, it can be incredibly beneficial. Throughout the year, many of the big changes in our lives have been completely out of our control. So yes, it has been natural to worry about the world and country, but knowing for the most part a lot of the change happening is not in our control can help ease some of that anxiety asking yourself questions like what can I do in this situation to make it better can also help improve your feelings of uncertainty
1: another key point that she raises is all around self-care so it really is important to practice self-care as any amount of change can be difficult to deal with especially if you are making some sort of transition in your life as you're going through certain changes or transitions, it's so important to continue practicing self-care. Your feelings are valid no matter what you are going through. So take time to process those emotions and practice positive coping skills.
0: For sure. And I particularly love that one because it's such a contrast to having a look at the impact of change on our mental health. And so some of the kind of symptoms that are listed as results of stress caused by change include things like eating too much or too little, trouble sleeping or having insomnia, like headaches. And of course, like she's mentioned there, increases in anxiety. Also, depression is commonly correlated. And so these are all things that remembering to still do our self-care, even though we're in a state of heightened stress, can help with.
1: We really all need to be practising self-care all the time and that will then make it easier to practise it when times are hard or we're transitioning through change. We tend to do our good behaviours at our most stressful times or we try to or we're told to. And then it be, can become a little bit inconsistent and, and harder to, to really focus in on whatever it is that you enjoy doing and, or your mind is still going over all the things that you've got to do or the change that's happening in your life while you're trying to read a book, go for a walk, do whatever it is that, that you do. So if you know I guess there's a real strong message there and uh, like for self-care in that you know the more that we can do it and consciously be aware that this is my this is my me time then when we're going through these rocky roads in our lives it's easier to cope and you know continue to practice your self-care and, and feel the benefits from it.
0: No, I relate to that a lot and I think this is quite a good reminder to me personally reading through this stuff because I I know a lot of these elements are the first thing that goes for me. And I think I've told you about this off air before. I am very good at surviving with minimal sleep after one night. And sometimes that feels like a positive skill. And most of the time it actually doesn't (laughs) help me because let's say I've got like a big work deadline. I might be staying up late Or I might put off everything else that I then have to do after I finish work. And then I'm going to bed late. And that's okay after the first day. But then it's like my body clock almost gets sort of tempted by that. And then as soon as the next night comes, I'm then not feeling ready for bed. Like I'm just sort of thrown out of my routine. And then it's when I don't get the proper night's sleep the second night. That's when I'm in trouble. Yeah, (laughs) yeah and so I've had to be really concentrating on that at the moment whilst still settling into my new place and so having all the normal life stuff to do and then also sorting out life admin and trying to be social and just sort of manage a life that currently spans two countries it can be a lot and so sometimes I rest on the fact that I can cope with a lot and so let my self-care fall away Mm. But there's only so long that can go for and actually still making time to look after myself, even when you feel like, oh, but I've got too many things to do, is actually the better thing long term.
1: It, It is. And the sleep thing is a massive point that you've just raised, because when I have got a lot to deal with the next day or I'm feeling particularly low or I've not had a great day and I'm not really looking forward to Tuesday, I don't go to bed early. I don't really want to go to bed. (laughs) And I know that it's because I don't really want to face the next day. If I'm totally honest, that is exactly what it is. I don't want to face what I've got to do. Even when I've got, like, whether it's personal change that I'm going through or something happening in my life personally or work, I find if I've got to get up really early for work to travel or if I've got to get up to do a big presentation or I've got a really important work day, I go to bed so late. I literally could be at working till two or three in the morning, even though I know my alarm's going off at like six. It's ridiculous that I do it. And similarly, even if it's not work, but I'm just not feeling great or I'm not having a good week. Again, the late of the nights, just sitting, either watching TV, reading, just being up late, seeing the clock tick, just knowing that I don't really want to go to sleep because I either won't sleep well or don't want to face the next day and you're absolutely right the first thing that falls away for me too can be that sleep and I know how important that is because say you know it's Monday by Wednesday I'm absolutely knackered and then obviously I feel 10 times worse.
0: Yeah and I think this is one of the areas where we have to consciously try and parent ourselves in is the way I sort of see it where we've got to keep track really and that was actually one of the other tips that Katie Zimmerman mentioned in her article was checking in with yourself rather than this automatic thing we can do of like keep your head down just grit your teeth get on with whatever you need to adapt to instead still make time to be like okay how am I feeling is there something I could do about what comes up Mm -hmm. because otherwise you know looking at the lists of like impacts we can rack up quite a few of these without even realizing getting less sleep our eating habits changing? Maybe somebody's drinking more than they usually would, getting irritable, feeling more anxious than they usually would. You know, I think it can be very easy for a lot of these elements to come together if we're not keeping an eye on it. And so sometimes I think we have to do that self-parenting where we're like, OK, this is enough. I'm feeling bad enough now. Enough is going on where I should be reaching out for help or I should be doing more self-care or something. Yeah. And I think our guest actually is the perfect person to continue this discussion with, because as a doctor, she has to balance that incredible caring nature she has for other people, but also remember to follow her own advice. And so that's one of the things we kind of touch on in the episode is ensuring Whatever it is your profession is, however stressful it is at the moment, still, how do we find the ways to look after ourselves and make sure we can be our best selves for the patient, but also our best selves for our own mental health?
1: And even us, you know, together doing this show and the things that we talk about all the time, you know, I think what's refreshing is that I think there's a level of empathy that isn't necessarily always there if you work in another job or, you know, with your co-workers that might not be so sensitive to your needs. I think maybe when, you know, working in our our industry and, and, and doing this show, we have a level of empathy to ourselves to our families you know to each other that is really refreshing and that I think is really nice about that we might not always follow advice that we know we should be potentially taking but we also know that that's okay and that we're okay to be open about that and talk about that
0: yeah yeah it's very important I struggle to relate to slash believe anybody that would have a show like ours and it's like oh yeah everything's perfect like my mental health that's just fixed (laughs) because it's just it's not what our experience is it's not what a lot of people's experience are this idea that somehow one day your mental health is just okay forever and so it was great to catch up with Jenny in what feels like a very special episode to me not only because she's a friend of mine who I've got to know originally through this podcast and actually the first time we ever explored mental health in education environments with our two-part series. I think it might have even been our first ever two-part series back in 2018. So we did one episode on school and one on university and she was in the university one. And that was also at the same time we were getting into campaigning around mental health education. So It was really lovely for me to get to reflect with a friend and look back at how much our lives have changed since then. And of course, her going from when I first met her being a medical student, having taken some time out of her studies in order to work on her mental health before returning, to now being a fully fledged doctor and being out there in the field. So it was really lovely to catch up with her and have a sort of more conversational, slightly outside of our usual format chat and hear what she's been up to and all the changes she's had to navigate and how well, how really, really well I think she's done it. So yeah, really, really lovely episode. And actually also notable, that episode was the first time I ever talked about my experiences around pressure to go to university and the major impact that had on my mental health as well. So this is an episode close to my heart for that reason as well, to be able to look back personally and see how far I've come since that and how much my mental health is objectively better, even during a time where we're going through a lot of change and transition and some days are still better than others.
1: Oh, that's nice. What a full circle interview, like you said. I love that, that she was one of the first you know especially the the two-part two-part series and her transition from being you know from being a medical student and now being a doctor and the changes and to have had to have been part of that you know with her I think that's amazing love it.
0: For sure it's a nice upbeat way of looking at this which you know is obviously a relevant and broad and potentially tricky topic to handle so yeah. Really, really pleased with this chat. Oh, and also some fun behind the scenes that'll be relevant in the interview. We talk a lot about the importance of socialising as a factor in mental health and keeping those connections up, even when it feels difficult to do so. And I'm going across to Edinburgh for a few days, and we are going for
1: lunch. So there is an example of us walking the walk, even if we don't always follow our own advice. I think one thing when you you mentioned earlier about, you know, people who might say that their mental health is, you know, stained, it was always in one place. One thing that is true, and it's kind of, I feel like there's not many facts in this world, but this is nearly one of them, and that is that... When you push yourself to do the thing that you really didn't wake up that morning and want to do, like you just said then, even when it feels hard, there's times that I find it very hard to even answer my phone or to go to work or... you know to face the world maybe sometimes and it's I always think back the thing that helps me is like going to the gym I do enjoy exercise I do train I do play sport and the one thing that is true about that which is the same about other things in your life you know when you do it Bob you do feel better you do it's very rare that you do it and regret doing it that thing that you know you generally enjoy, but today you can't face it. If you can't face it, you can't face it. But if you just sometimes think, no, I'm going to do it. Or the person that you were meeting for lunch says, no, we can't cancel. I really want to do it today. Come on. Or, you know, you come away and think, why did I ever not want to do it? You know, I feel better for doing it. So keeping those social connections alive, as you said so rightly, although it may seem really, really hard at times you always feel better afterwards
0: no I know what you mean and even just what you said there about the thing that is on your mind to do or however you phrase it so often there's that thing we wake up and the thing we need to do most is often both the most important and most scary for whatever reason and you know maybe that's because it's important it's scary we want to get it right And so there can be that temptation. But you and I both know, as self-employed people, it's often the the stuff we might want to put off, like, you know, invoicing is the stuff that gets us paid. (laughs) and So we need to get on with it. And you're right, you feel relieved. You feel relieved when you do it. Yeah, great point. And so with that, we'll get into the episode with Dr. Jenny Pusey in a moment. But first, who's our sponsor? Let's find out. So I'm here with Jenny Pusey and we were just talking off air about where we should start and possibly pre-pandemic, if we can think back as far as that.
3: Yeah, that sounds good. I think it's fun to think back to how far ago that was now and how much things have changed and it feels like so long and so fast at the same time.
0: Yeah, exactly. That weird time warp of it feels like no time at all because it's like, well, there was a lot of sitting around at home for many of us, but also so much has changed and our world is really different.
3: And the things that have become a new normal now as well.
0: Well, I've said that before, that if you told me a few years ago that this many people would be wearing masks, I know it's less than it was. But I wouldn't have believed it. I wouldn't have thought, you know, in the UK, in England, nah. Yeah, it was just totally unheard of before. And so would you mind sharing a little bit of where you were at in terms of your studies and what you were up to pre-pandemic?
3: Yeah, so I think before the pandemic hit, I was in, I think, my second to last year of med school. I remember in particular, I was on my psychiatry placement, actually, at the time when the pandemic kind of started. And it was a few weeks into that, when it kind of basically got bad enough in the UK that things were starting to hospitals were getting busy they were rearranging the services and so at that point all my students got pulled off of our placements I'm trying to think when that was that must have been March or something like that and yeah just all of a sudden we all had nothing to do.
0: Yeah, I've heard you talk about that on your university's podcast, actually, where you said you just got an email being like, oh, FYI, this is your last day on this placement.
3: Yeah. And I remember actually walking to the car park and the consultant who was my supervisor was walking past. Because he, he hadn't been in there that morning and him basically being like, oh, should I like see you tomorrow? And being like, no, we've just been pulled off placement. <laughs> We're not coming back again.
0: Wow, that's so strange. And so what was that initial impact? Because you obviously had the worry of the pandemic and all the scary things you're seeing on the news, but also being in the medical world and being like, okay, what's what's next? How much am I going
3: to be involved in all this? There was so much uncertainty. I think part of it, like you say, like people didn't really know what COVID was and how much of an impact it would have. And there was all kinds of rumours flying around. And of course, we didn't have online teaching set up at this point. So we were basically just told, at least for the next few weeks, you're not going to be off. And we would just gradually get updates saying, OK, you're not going back yet. And as well, you'd hear, especially I think it was London that was hit really hard in that first wave. And we we're hearing about med students being brought in to plug like rotor gaps. And it was just the constant not really knowing what was going on. And yeah, I think that's partly what led to what I kind of mentioned about me and a friend setting up the kind of babysitting project to basically provide free babysitting, childcare, and pet sitting service for NHS workers who are having to go in last minute because we were like, well, we've got a whole bunch of medical students who we can kind of look after people (laughs) and (laughs) we've got absolutely nothing to do at the moment. But so many like NHS staff were having to go in for extra shifts. Sometimes at really short notice and a big thing for them was like, what do they do with their kids? So that was something that motivated that. And I think that definitely kept us busy. I think probably as a group of people, I think we're all addicted to being a bit stressed in some ways. I think we wouldn't go into medicine if we didn't like (laughs) constantly feeling a bit stressed. (laughs) So I think, yeah, I think we needed something to do.
0: (laughs) That's so funny that you say that because I can really relate via my parents. Yeah, they they definitely have that syndrome where my dad is now semi-retired and the amount of sort of planning and organisation that must go into his job is now being applied to his retirement. And so he wants (laughs) to like rush around and like see shows and plan holidays, even though that's not been that possible through this time, in contrast to my mum who's still working full time, it's like I can't do all this extracurricular stuff. But it's like, yeah, yeah, he needs that. It's like a certain level of hecticness you become so used to that they're not having it is stressful.
3: Yeah, yeah, and I really struggled with like having a lack of structure, and I think just in general that is something which really hits my mental health and it's quite a big risk factor for me is just not having like any structure to my day because I will just sort of fester and I'll basically just slowly stop looking after myself, I think, because I don't have any external pressure to bother doing that.
0: Yeah. No, I get the same and it's weird to admit to sometimes how much we need those external factors to look after ourselves, you know, which should be yeah. enough that we look after ourselves for us but I think that is a journey as opposed to something we maybe automatically have yeah and so do you then also find you're getting part of that festering is like the thoughts are ramping up and your mind is kind of wandering in negative directions
3: yeah I think that is I think it's a combination of having too much time on my hands so I'll find that my thoughts kind of through a bit anyway and then yeah it spirals a bit I think and can easily go from well I'm not doing anything so why bother showering and getting dressed and then you feel a bit rubbish anyway so you kind of don't do anything else to help yourself and it just because you're not doing anything to help yourself again you don't have any motivation to shower and it's just like a big circle that goes round and round and I think it's really easy for it to just get out of control and not really know how you've got there.
0: Yeah, there's been a lot of that for people in the pandemic, including for a lot of people that, you know, that have had these additional challenges from working from home that they might not be used to, like you say, the lacking of routine, even just all the time looking at yourself in Zoom. You know, I have a friend that's a dentist and he says teeth whitening's gone through the roof now that the restrictions are lifting, because people have been staring at themselves, criticising their own face in a way that they've, you know, they've not been able to do that in a meeting before. And it's scary how maybe none of us quite want to admit how much these external factors can undermine our mental health.
3: Yeah, that's interesting to say that, actually, it's something I hadn't thought of. But yeah, we really do just spend so much time looking at our own faces now and I I think the ironic (laughs) thing is nobody's really focusing on what you look like because we're all looking at ourselves and thinking oh do we look okay
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's such a paradox isn't it I've actually got the mic set up where I can't see myself and it's not on purpose (laughs) But when I started realising that, so just the way I like things laid out, I like my control box on the right side of me and my laptop on the left. So that's just where the mic happens to sit naturally so that I can still see you. And at a certain point I was like, hmm, yeah, this is another reason why it's going to stay in this location. (laughs) It's not just how (laughs) I like things being laid out. It's also like you don't want to, but you'll keep flicking down there. Yeah. And so you, like me, I think, found things to fill your time with i launched a whole second podcast you set up medic Share. and so what was it like the response and managing that in your life
3: yeah so we had no idea how popular it was going to be because there was just such huge demand for it ultimately interestingly there weren't actually that many people who needed it in the end because i think i think again this came down to part of the problem where at the start of COVID, nobody really knew what was going on. Nobody knew how big it was going to get. I think people who would normally have like relatives and stuff looking after family, they'd be like, well, what if they get COVID? And so a big part that the medics share actually played was just being reassurance for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But it was just such a huge organizational challenge, having so many people message in and then also trying to organize the med students, and, and it was just, yeah, it was logistically was crazy. And we'd end up having these meetings with the organisers from like different med schools that would go on for like hours and they'd all be at weird times of the day. And we'd be speaking to people like public health doctors and we had another, a quick shout out to Mark Dunn, who's one of the intensive care doctors in Edinburgh, was a really big help. In I think helping us partly from the COVID side and making sure we were like being sensible, but also helping us to work out what priorities the staff had as well. And yeah, it just big, it basically just took over like our entire lives, <laughs> which was really great. And I think a lot of people were very grateful, but it also definitely took a big toll on my mental health because I was pouring like absolutely everything into trying to like run this project behind the scenes.
0: Do you feel like part of that as well was seeing what was going on and how COVID infections were ramping up and your fellow doctors being out there on the front lines and then you felt I have to do something like a moral duty as well as a way to be proactive?
3: Yeah there was definitely a lot of that we definitely felt quite helpless and quite sidelined and I think because we'd seen, particularly down in London, a lot of the med students had been brought in to do things. So I think as well, like at that point, we'd kind of definitely kind of you know we couldn't have been going and doing like the role of like junior doctors, but there were things we could do, just like taking bloods and helping out with personal care and things like that, which there wasn't a need for at that time in Edinburgh. So I think a lot of us just felt very helpless. Like I said as well, there wasn't any like online teaching or anything at this point. So we were just kind of sitting around, kind of nobody leaving the home. And it was just quite scary as well, because as well, at that point, there was no like routine testing. There was nothing like that. There was, there was kind of no good like treatment either. It was kind of seeing how things played out, really.
0: Right. I have that experience a lot at the moment where I reflect in these kind of conversations and think, Actually, it's kind of a wonder a lot of people, myself included, weren't even more scared. Because when we look at how little we knew compared to now, like you're there trying to set up this support service at a time when I'd say the medical community was like mostly sure, but not entirely sure how much less harmful COVID was to youngsters. And so you're trying to like balance the morality of like, we need to support people with childcare, but also... What if anything happens?
3: And something that you've actually just reminded me of is I remember at the time, I think masks still weren't something that was recommended. And so I remember there being, I remember having a big, long meeting at one point where we were trying to decide, like, should we make it mandatory that like people who are going babysitting should be wearing masks and stuff? And we didn't know things like clothes. We were like, if they're on public transport is they're kind of wearing those like clothes? Is that going to transmit things? Like we just had no idea. And so it was quite, yeah, it was very intense because we definitely not only wanted to help, but there would be nothing worse than if we'd set up this project to try and help people. And then we'd actually just spread COVID around to the families of doctors and nurses.
0: For sure. And you were going to share earlier about the need didn't, end up being as much as you thought. But of course, there was still a lot of planning of people wanted to be in touch and have your service there as an option. And so what was the impact of all of that stress as it wound down a bit?
3: So I think as it wound down, I definitely at this point was still kind of on the lookout for things to do because I think I had that sort of empty part, but I also was getting, I guess, quite burnt out by this. And I think not even necessarily just like the project itself, because I was living alone as well, so I didn't have other people in my flat who I was isolating with. I didn't really have any, like, physical contact with people, so I was very isolated in hindsight. And so for a little while, I actually found another project to jump onto, which was, there was just, like, a local group who were 3D printing face shields, and I just helped out with online ordering system that they had. Basically, I just... When an order came in, just said yes or no, that's a totally inappropriate request. Um, as you quite often had people chanting it and then sent it through to the guys who printed it. But it was during this time when that was also beginning to wind down that I think that's when I noticed when my mental health had just taken a proper dive and my mood was just so low and I wasn't looking after myself at all. Like I wasn't showering. I wasn't really eating. But again, I didn't really notice this at the time. And the appointments with my mental health team were all over the phone. And then I remember being asked to go in for a face-to-face appointment, like, at really short notice one day and being like, that's weird, like, what the hell? And then basically being like, oh, I think you need to go to hospital. And I remember it just being a total shock and being like, me? (laughs) Like, I'm fine. And genuinely... Not being able to like comprehend it, and then long so short, I like absolutely refused to go, being like, no, like I'm not unwell, I'm just sad, basically, and yeah, I found myself in hospital. But I think once I was there, I think I mentioned this to you a bit earlier as well, how I think almost just being in that different environment, I think even just having people physically make sure I ate, made sure eventually that I got in shower, and just having that human contact, I think was enough to make me kind of realize like okay actually I've not been well like I've been I suppose just quite stuck in my own mind and in my own depression and I think I was able to realize just how much everything had affected me so in the end it was actually a really short admission because I think most of what I needed was just that perspective which I had totally totally lost
0: yeah And I think also the impact of not having anyone around you is so massive. Like we've really learned a lot about that through the pandemic. And it's something Mm -hmm. that still isn't properly understood because you can get studies into it in medical environments, for example, where for certain conditions, patients can have better outcomes when they're on a ward as opposed to a room on their own. And it's not agreed on yet what the actual science is there. And yet, you know, there's so much we know about, you know, the importance of physical touch, the importance of communicating with other people to help us get out of our heads and process feelings. And obviously, counselling is a brilliant example of that. But there's even something just about being in proximity to people, even if you don't talk to them. And I think it's been, you know, hopefully a positive that whilst we hopefully will figure out what that that is, what that thing is, you know, we've all had the reminder of how important we all are to each other. And I think a lot of people are talking of changes. I think a lot of people are factoring that in as we come out of a lot of the restrictions of, okay, maybe I want to live closer to family or You know, maybe living on my own isn't for me after all. Like I'm seeing a lot of friends go through those kind of decisions.
3: Yeah. And that's something I've definitely, I make a lot more of an effort now to make sure I've got things planned in with other people instead of just kind of leaving it to chance. Like if I notice that I've not seen friends in quite a while, I'll think like, okay, I need to get something in the diary, even if it's just going for a walk or going for coffee or something like that.
0: And it's so much better, certainly in my experience, to get that stuff on the go as a habit, as opposed to wait when, you know, I'm having a dip and my depression's really riling up. And then it's like, oh, well, now maybe I feel like too much of a burden to speak to anyone or I don't feel emotionally able for a lot of socialising.
3: Yeah, yeah, totally agree. And that's something which I think more recently I've been discharged from the community mental health team and something we've put in place before that was working out basically a crisis plan or I feel like it's not even it's not even a crisis plan it's more of a preventing a crisis plan almost where um, we just worked out (laughs) yeah we basically worked out what are like the earliest warning signs that I might be struggling and need some help and I think just getting into my head that it's much better to like say if I go to my GP and actually I'm fine they just say okay we'll keep an eye on you and catch up in a few weeks that's much better than I think what I've traditionally done is constantly put off and be like oh it's not that bad it's not that bad until it's really bad and I've totally lost insight and now I'm not going to ask for help because I don't think I need it and I don't want it so I think that's something it's definitely important to try and make things a habit and prevent yourself from I guess prevent yourself from like struggling alone
0: yeah and a contrast that I notice if this is something you've experienced is that often for medical professionals you have that insight into what other people are going through and so that can almost become fodder to play down your own issues and then also there can still be like we've talked about before stigmas in the NHS and other healthcare environments that make you feel you need to stay on the doctor side of the fence as opposed to the patient as if there are only those two boxes and you can only be in one. So do you feel like that sometimes holds you back from getting the help because you're like well other people have it worse or you know I should be able to handle this because of my role?
3: Yeah I'd say definitely but I think that's probably quite a common theme amongst anybody in healthcare. In particular like that's the thing I think because it feels like other people are relying on you not even just the way where it's like oh the patients need me in a way that it's like the team needs you because the rotors are so tight that if somebody is off sick you notice it you never like I've never held it against somebody else it's more that if somebody is off sick and we're short staffed I don't think oh how dare they be off sick I think oh why didn't they get a locum <laughs> like why didn't they get someone to fill the shift but I think you hold it in your head as being like, I don't want to let the team down. And so I know for me in particular as well, it's one of the absolute last things to slip, I guess, will be work, keep up appearances when working until I like physically can't. And I think that's probably something that a lot of people do, probably not just in like healthcare as well. I think just generally, I think people worry about letting other people down more than they care about letting themselves down.
0: And I think what you've mentioned there of a way to kind of examine these hypocrisies sounds straightforward, but I have to constantly remind myself to do it, where you think, okay, if a friend of mine or if a colleague or whoever in this situation behaved in this way, how would I react to them? Because it's rarely as bad as how self-conscious I might be feeling and how I assume that everyone else is going to be knives out about something that, you know, people in any industry being off sick is actually just very common. It is not in any way an unusual thing. There should be processes in place to meet that. And so if we fast forward a little bit to where we're at now, which you got to graduate, you were a pandemic graduate. How was that?
3: It was surreal, (laughs) actually. Do you know? As far as graduations go, so the first one, official one, I guess, was they tried their best, but it was over Zoom. But then, over, I think it was in August, Edinburgh Uni did actually put on quite a nice, like, like generic celebration. So it wasn't for specific degrees or anything. But you basically went along to Edinburgh Castle, and they have Edinburgh has this really old hat. And when you graduate you get hit on the head with this hat and supposedly <laughs> i didn't know about it's, this <laughs> I know, so suppose, it's from like the middle ages or something and some someone went into space and a bit of the fabric they took up has been sewn into this hat as well it's got a lot of weird things but you get hit on the head with it and apparently you're no longer in servitude to the uni once you've been hit on the head by this hat <laughs> so they put on this thing where you can go up to Edinburgh Castle basically and all in one big line you'll march through and get hit on the head with the hat so it was quite nice <laughs> that we still got to do that even though it's quite a bizarre way to
0: do it. <laughs> wow the, the pinnacle of healthcare <laughs> hit him on the head with the hat
3: I, how, th- I thought you were joking for a
0: moment <laughs> I thought you were you know Like, the phrasing people say, like, somebody's old hat. I I thought it was something metaphorical.
3: (laughs) it literally just...
0: It does does have a Hogwarts about it, doesn't it?
3: That is so true. I've never put those together.
0: So, you get hit over the head with the hat. You are free from the responsibilities of the uni, but... You then have the now responsibilities.
3: No, the NHS.
0: <laughs> exactly. So you're going into the NHS in such a challenging time. Daunting?
3: Yeah, it's been very surreal. I think one thing that actually has been a massive help to myself is because of having, like, a mental health diagnosis and being involved in mental health services meant I was eligible to apply for less than full-time training, which... Is I'm pretty sure they purposely don't call it part time because so I'm doing it at 80% of full time, but my hours still average out at 38 a week, which I don't really feel is part time, but that's just gives me a little bit more breathing space. And it's just, yeah, it's been very surreal. I think in some ways, bits of it have become normalized for us. Like it's not like it's a change to how things work like we're coming into the hospital always wearing scrubs always having face masks on having the different aerosol precautions and in that way I feel like COVID has just become quite a normal part of the job in some ways I think that's not necessarily a good thing and particularly at the moment I'm working on respiratory ward and the thing about COVID is that You just see the same thing day in, day out and wait to see if they get better or not. And a lot of times they just don't get better and they die. But because it's such a, it's an everyday occurrence that you just become quite, I don't know if numb to it is the right word. It just becomes, it's like the norm. Like you expect it. You can usually tell a few days beforehand, like which people are going to get better. It's just It's become weirdly monotonous because I think because for us, it's our day in the office.
0: Yeah, I know what you mean. It's a sort of strange psychological trick that goes on where in order to rationalise something that's subjectively so horrific to witness, we start sort of readjusting, you know, your perspective Mm. changes. Because I think in some ways it would be quite unsustainable to cope with. If you clung on to the idea that that young people don't die and this condition you know didn't exist two years yeah. ago or however long you have to let go of a certain amount of your' outside of the hospital thinking when you're in that environment in order to cope with the trauma so then if you're expecting it then that's different than if you allowed yourself to be shocked by every death which would, then in itself be irrational. It's it's such a strange place that you sort of readjust in a way that is probably protective, but in its own way, a different kind of trauma.
3: Yeah. And I think that's something that we have to be quite careful about, especially we have to be mindful of the fact that if you're like breaking bad news to someone or you're calling a family in to not be... I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. I guess to not put across that feeling of it being routine, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I know what you mean. It is really difficult to describe because there's that fear of sounding insensitive. Um, mm. But at the same time, this is your job, and you have to take on board these experiences and find ways to, you know, improve your practice as a doctor. And that's a really weird thing to wrap your head around, that you are becoming a better doctor by all of the experiences you have, including when people die. Because, you know, that's not that's not a good outcome, is it? But its it's just not. And yet that's still an experience that feeds into your development. And so, you know, yeah. finding as far as dealing with the family, this isn't routine. None of the context of COVID and how many people have died that day or not actually makes any difference to their grief and the level of care that they deserve.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I remember there being one shift where we basically just had like a few days worth of, or I think it was about a week's worth of death certificates had basically just piled up and not been done yet. And it was something like, I want to say there was like eight or nine of them. And kind of, I remember kind of sitting down in the afternoon after we'd done like the world round. And it was kind of one of those moments where it sort of snapped me out of that routineness of it for a moment. And I think brought back the, I suppose, like the reality and the gravity of the situation.
0: Yeah, right. Because whilst you adjust to that to an extent, it's still so horrible and it's still something mm. that. You know, you don't go into this profession in order to ever be comfortable with people dying. You know, that's, that's always going to be devastating and, and what you're so much working against happening. And so it's such a tough time to be coming into it for you. And what have you found then in terms of things you can do in work and outside of work to keep your own mental health maintained? Is that the right
3: word? Is that too technical? Yeah, no, I think that's right. You know, it's something which, I mean, going back to when I was in hospital and the kind of recovery period after that, before going back from my final year of med school, I think that was quite a big influence on wanting to not be doing full-time training and wanting to make sure I have more time to, I think, just to look after myself. And it sounds like such a cliche, but I think to be compassionate to myself and make sure that I'm kind of taking part in self-care and being kind to myself and making sure I'm doing nice things instead of just getting into the habit of just putting everything into like work or some kind of project and totally burning out. And you know, I think as much as we all kind of joke about like Zoom fatigue, I think I'm in much better contact with friends from other cities. Like my friends who I went to school with and friends as well who are living down in London, we just stay in such better contact now. I mean, think about before the pandemic, nobody video called. Like it would have just been weird. I would be like, oh, hey, do you want to have a great video chat? Like It just didn't yeah. really happen. So I think that's actually something really positive that has come out of the pandemic. Obviously kind of not wanting to be the only context that you have, you want to see people in person as well. But yeah, I think just as more normalized way to keep in touch with people who are far away.
0: Yeah. I think that's been the main thing for me. So when we were first we did a min well, I say mini-series, it was a lot of episodes, but we did our initial coverage of the pandemic and part of that was we looked at the potential positives as they kind of came up through the media or things that were on mine and Danielle's mind, what hope can we find out of this? And I think that has been one of the biggest ones, is like the reassessing of how important the connections we all have are and how we need to prioritise them better. And if I may ask you one doctor question to finish up with, (laughs) what kind of things would you recommend if people are in that place of uncertainty of what is going to come next what changes might I have to still make in my life and how do I look after my mental health in this uncertainty
3: I think a lot of it comes down to trying to connect with other people and even just vocalizing those worries that you have I think everybody is sharing them at the moment And, you know, I think it's still worth, if it's really impacting you, it is still worth trying to get in touch from a medical perspective, trying to get in touch. You know, like, GPs still want to help us, trying to support each other. And I think just share the fact that it's a really rubbish time and we're all just having a bit of a sucky time at the moment.
0: Yes, that's it. (laughs) A sucky time, 100%. (laughs) And so perhaps, you know, that's where we can jumpstart a lot of this connection, and be like, okay, we've been reminded yeah. that looking out for each other is so important. Now we're in a position where we can see people more again. Let's do it. Let's make the most of it yeah. whilst we ride out whatever comes next. Yeah. All right. I
3: come this bar. We can make it through the last push.
0: Yes. Love it. Good place to finish. Thank you so much. <laughs> and if people want to follow more of your life and see what's happening. You have a very entertaining Twitter, which is currently <laughs> Halloween themed. I'm not going to ruin the puns. People are going to have to go find it. So what, what is your at
3: on there? So it's Jenny underscore Pusey. So it's a P-E-W-S-E-Y. Brilliant. Anything else you want to I think to it's a big combination. It's a, probably a combination of memes. <laughs> Me raging about things <laughs> and telling terrible jokes.
0: Yeah, it's certainly all things that can be good for your mental health, so we'll take it. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for listening. For a list of our recommended resources, visit mentalpodcast.co.uk. And remember, we are in no way a substitute for qualified counselling or other mental health support. Our show is edited and produced by the brilliant Pete Murta with licensed music by Netsky. Links in the description. Speak to you next Thursday and remember...
2: O'Reilly Auto Parts